I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ireland is not coming down with famous philosophers, which makes the neglect of John Toland in academia all the more puzzling. A significant figure in the free-thinking movement of the early Enlightenment period, the Donegal-born thinker, whose first language was Irish, has a stature in continental Europe far beyond that in the English-speaking world. Dr Ian Leask, a lecturer in philosophy at the Matter Day Institute at DCU, is among a number of academics who've been rebuilding his reputation in recent years. I started by asking him, who was John Toland? Toland was a philosopher. He, he was born in 1670 in Inishon in Donegal, Inishon Peninsula. Uh, he begins life as an Irish-speaking Catholic. He, there's speculation that his, he may actually have been the son of a priest, although this is unproven. Um, at the age of 14, having apparently been a shepherd, uh, at the age of 14, I suppose his intellectual gifts were becoming apparent, and he... Uh, he uh, manages to secure an education via the, well, the Anglicans, via the Church of Ireland in, in Derry. Now, he converts to Protestantism, but whether this is purely an expedient device to provide him with a fuller education is, is open to question. But anyway, the Church of Ireland is very impressed by his abilities and hope that he might be, well, it seems that they, they hope that he might be able to proselytize on their behalf as a native Irish speaker. So they send him to Scotland um, for a university education. He goes to Glasgow, although uh, for issues, I think, to do with an oath of allegiance, he actually graduates from Edinburgh. But he studies in Glasgow, and he becomes increasingly involved with a range of radical and republican and anti-theocratic causes there, as well as, uh, as, well as studying philosophy. After he leaves Scotland, he heads to England where he becomes associated instead of heading back to Ireland, he heads to England where he becomes associated with various you know, dissenting and radical Presbyterian causes they in turn get him funding to go to Holland, or to the Netherlands I should say, and he spends two or three years uh, there where there are new uh, scriptural methods of exegesis that are opening up um, and he becomes, as well as being exposed to these methods, he becomes involved in all sorts of uh, libertine circles, free-thinking circles. He returns to, uh, uh, to England, um, and he's, he's on the sort of the, the, the fringes of, I suppose, the Whigs at this time. He, he becomes associated with them in England. He produces uh, versions of the, the English Republican canon, and he produces his own uh, Life of Milton, most famously, in 1695, he publishes uh, a book called Christianity Not Mysterious, for which he's probably best known, although I'm not sure it's actually his most substantial philosophical text. And this produces a wave of uh, reaction. Uh, with, before the century has ended, there are something like a hundred published responses to Christianity Not Mysterious. The first edition is anonymous, the second edition has his name, which is possibly a bit reckless, um, and it, it ruined uh, chances that he, he hoped he had for securing a job in Ireland, as it happens. Yeah, just explain the reaction to the book, and what was it in the book that, that was so incendiary? 
well, the reaction is uh, is, is fairly extreme. In Ireland, um, it was ordered symbolically to be burdened by the public hangman, and a warrant was issued for Tone's arrest. In England, there were all sorts of reactions. Uh, various grand juries tried to uh, 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 to prosecute Toland. Um, what he's saying that so incendiary is well, the title already suggests that you know there's nothing mysterious in Christianity. That in effect, that the, the core precepts of Christianity are completely amenable to religion. Uh, there is nothing, as he says, uh, either contrary to reason or even above reason, beyond reason's comprehension uh, in Christianity, which, uh, as his opponent saw it, was a way of uh, a way of reducing religion. It was a way of uh, presenting a, a wholly kind of rationalized and sanitized account of revelation. So Toland, for example, will, will take notions that he's learned from the English philosopher Locke, John Locke, um, the first great empiricist philosopher, and he'll use them to suggest that, well, Locke has, has shown that, uh, I suppose, any object, uh, a cup on the table, uh, a book, any object has a kind of unknown uh, internal structure, and we know its, uh, uh, we know its uh, uh, external appearance, but we wouldn't think about using the word mystery for the internal structure of a paper cup or whatever. Well, so too, Tolan says, um, uh, with any object, uh, uh, any, any religious entity too um, there's no reason for us to treat the Bible as having some mysterious unknowable core um, it is completely amenable to reason you know, he would claim that this was uh, he was simply being faithful to the biblical authors but this certainly isn't how it's interpreted at the time it's seen as an attack on, on the, uh, the kind of sacred nature of scripture I suppose and he became known, Berkeley called him the, a, a free thinker, and I'm not sure whether he meant it that as a compliment or not, but um, is that, what is the best term for him? Because some people would have said he was actually an atheist in truth, but he was afraid of coming out as such. Hmm. The phrase free thinker, um, uh, I think, although I'm not certain on this, that the, the Irish or Anglo-Irish philosopher Molyneux might have been one of the first to employ this phrase free thinker. Um, and I suppose it means, roughly speaking, that someone isn't bound or, or feels obliged to uh, religious authority in the way that they, they pursue uh, philosophical questions. Um, so Tolan certainly is a free thinker, going by that definition. Um, did he understand himself as a free thinker? Yes, I think he's perfectly happy with that description. He, he has no problem with it. Personally, I think, uh, I mean, these terms, of course, are... Are, uh, are fluid, I suppose, and uh, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily mean the same thing at the beginning of the 18th century as they might do today, but I think to all intents and purposes, Toland is an atheist, even though, of course, he can hardly quite describe himself as that. The term that, of course, he becomes increasingly associated with as his thought develops uh, going into the 18th century is pantheism. Now, the way that, I suppose, Subsequently, especially maybe some of the romantics in the 19th century thought of pantheism was that it kind of spiritualized matter so that we could say, you know, God inhabits the, the leaves and the trees, the, the, the grass or whatever. But really, I think Toland's uh, point here, and here he's, I think he's hugely influenced by the, the 17th century Dutch-Jewish philosopher Spinoza. Toland's point really is not to spiritualize matter, but to naturalize the divine. So that if God is a word that we can use for uh, the cosmos in its entirety, but there is nothing beyond, over and above the cosmos in, in its entirety. Um, there is no transcendent 
or transitive cause of this uh, of, of creation. There is just nature. Um, so, although pantheism might sound in a romantic interpretation to be uh, to be a very spiritual notion, I don't think it is for Tolan. So, I think to all intents and purposes, yes, he is an atheist, but he needs to be very careful about about making that explicit. Uh, he's certainly part and parcel of a whole wave that's emerging at the beginning of the 18th century, maybe the end of the, the 17th century, uh, that's increasingly looking to treat religion on naturalistic terms, which today is maybe not such a big deal. You know, the, whole, the sociology of religion is, a, is a, an established field. But of course, uh, it's, this is a radically new thing to do uh, at this time, to say, no, religion is, is, uh, will not give it any kind of... Uh, supernatural status, a divine status, will treat it as another object to be understood scientifically, if you like. He's certainly part of a wave that is, that is bringing about this kind of change. That is one of the points that's brought in when people assess his legacy, that said that his ideas, if you like, are commonplace today, are not controversial. Um, or, is that a correct assessment, or is there really original thought there in what, he's, what he wrote and that, that has kind of radical relevance to, for today as well? Is he original? Yes. Um, uh, what he's able to do, it seems to me, is to, first of all, this great, he's very perspicuous, very acute in understanding um, the significance of so much contemporary thought, uh, as well as understanding the significance of so much uh, uh, material from history. So right away he, he, he understands what's central in Spinoza, what's central in Leibniz, what's central in Newton. Um, and he takes these, these elements, I suppose, and uh, synthesizes them to an extent. He's not necessarily a systematic thinker, but there's still a very interesting synthesis that he's able to achieve. Uh, very often, uh, elements too of Locke, of, who, whom I've already mentioned, um, very often the way he does this um, it's quite distressing to the authors that he's using, or as they would have it, abusing. But the kind of synth synthesis or syntheses that he achieves, um, I think uh, there is great originality here. Uh, he's, a f he's a much more significant thinker than he's often been given credit for, especially, I think, in the Anglophone world. He's probably been treated more seriously as a thinker rather than just a kind of important historical operator. He's been treated more seriously as a philosopher in the continent, in Italy especially, but France to an extent too, Germany to an extent. Um, in England, he's been the general tendency, I think, is to be, see him as a kind of just a second-rate follower of John Locke. In Ireland, the reaction hasn't been so much maybe to patronise him. Uh, he's been treated more as a slightly scary figure. That's possibly something to do with the, what could you say, the ecclesiastical infrastructure of a lot of Irish philosophy, academic philosophy. Because he was seen as anti-Catholic. Whether that was true or not, um, you can debate that point, but certainly that was the public perception he had. He was a bit of a Richard Dawkins of his day, if you like, a, a, a rabble-rouser kind of troublemaker. He's definitely anti-theocratic. He's against any sort of absolutism. He's deeply uh, wary of uh, priestcraft, as he puts it. That isn't exclusive to Catholicism. I mean, a lot of what he's writing about is targeting, it's an English audience he's targeting in England, so it's, it's, it's uh, high church Anglicanism that he's particularly worried about. Um, yes, it's true, he, he, uh, his, his sort of strongest barbs are directed towards Catholicism. But as I say, I suppose one point to make is that it's not that it's, uh, his uh, ire isn't just directed to Catholicism, I suppose it's to the theocracy as a whole, 
Secondly, I suppose the notion of anti-Catholicism itself probably needs to be kind of unpacked. Remember, he's studying in the Netherlands uh, just within a few years of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes when um, you, you, know, you have thousands of refugee Protestants from, from France who are instilling this wider sense of, uh, uh, of, of uh, the terror of uh, what's seen as Catholic absolutism. So I suppose anti-Catholicism in that context is quite different from, say, it might be in Ireland uh, today, you know, when anti-Catholicism maybe means, you know, uh, uh, loyalist supremacism or something like this. It's a very subjective question, and it's, it's difficult to evaluate people's legacy so long on. But do you regard him as Ireland's greatest philosopher? Yeah, as you say, very difficult to, to, uh, uh, to quantify this kind of thing. And, I mean, people would perfectly right, r- rightly um, uh, posit Aryudjana, the Carolingian philosopher, I mean, who was probably Europe's most important thinker between the time of Augustine and Aquinas as Ireland's greatest, or, you know, in the same century as Toland Barclay. And Barclay does seem to be more of a kind of world historical figure in terms of the history of philosophy. I'm not c- sure I'd want to say the greatest. I think he's a far more important and significant philosopher than he's been given credit for. I hope that doesn't sound like a milly mouth response, but um, there's far more there. There's far more there than a common perception might suggest. Uh, O'Tolland, he was a deist. O'Tolland, he took some of Locke's ideas. There's actually really interesting creative work he's doing as a philosopher, so he, he, he definitely should be treated as a substantial figure, for sure. Ian Lees, thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.